1: That's what it says in Exodus 25, 3. Let them make me a, a dwelling place, a shekan, a mishkan, a, a tabernacle. Let them make me a dwelling place that I may dwell among them. He wants to. God wants to. And so here he's describing the time when he comes and returns and dwells in Jerusalem to live there. He packs his bag there and he says Jerusalem is going to be called at that time a city of truth. That will be the place where all nations will flow to. find the truth of God and he says Jerusalem will be a holy city a holy city and then he said there'll be so much joy there'll be so much happiness there that the streets he says are going to be full of boys and girls playing in the street that makes God happy that makes God very very happy that vision of streets full of boys and girls playing in the street not grumpy drivers saying can't you keep your kids out of the street but no, God says, let him play, let him play. This is wonderful streets full of boys and girls because that's what God loves. God's a God of joy. He's a God of happiness. Job describes God in Job 8.21 when it says, till he fill thy mouth with laughing and thy lips with rejoicing. God loves a good belly laugh. God loves laughing. Why? Because laughing reflects joy. Laughing reflects freedom and uh, the ability to be able to laugh. What the Egyptians had done to the Jewish people is taken away their ability to laugh. As Job says, till he filled thy mouth with laughing and thy lips with rejoicing. No laughing, no rejoicing, just oni, just affliction, just depression. And God, God doesn't like that. And so he wants to fill. He wants to fill mouths with laughing and fill lips with rejoicing. So what's the opposite of laughing and rejoicing? It's depression. And that's the state that he saw his people in. In verse 7, when he says, I've seen the affliction or depression of my people. It's this deep sense of darkness. And it comes over our soul. And as it comes over this deep sense of darkness, this cloud, it brings with it a great sense of sadness. And then there's the pull of it. And the pull is to pull lower and lower and lower into the pit of darkness. That's depression. That's what depression is. And we are to respond to depression as God wants us to respond to depression by understanding God didn't give us that. That did not come from God. That came from the, God, the other God, the God of depression, Satan. And what we are to do with Satan is described in James 4, 7 where he said, resist Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Full verse says, submit yourselves therefore unto God. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So when those clouds of depression come over our souls, that's the time to remember Exodus 3, 7. I have seen, I have seen the depression of my people then, from what follows in Exodus 3, we're going to see how God did something. He didn't just sit there and just say, oh, I got a report now. I see the report on my people are depressed. But he went into action, and this, this is, well, this is here, is really this is an account of God flying into action because he saw the depression of his people. What was the action that God flew into? He calls Moses. And so for the people, they should understand help is on the way, and the people had to wait for God's help and resist the depression in the meantime until God's help in the person of Moses arrived. Now we all have those clouds of depression. Some of us comes over more often, some of it's a chemical imbalance in our bodies, sometimes it's a situation, doesn't matter. It all comes as the same clouds of depression and they come over our souls and God calls on us to resist them, to resist them. You know, this happened to me yesterday. Just yesterday, I was totally broadsided. I had no idea that I was in for a cloud of depression, but it happened. And I didn't see it coming. You know, I had gone back for my six-month checkup with the oncologist at the beautiful Morris Cancer Center at the University of California, San Diego. And the outside of this building is, ah, it could win awards. It's beautiful. Facade of glass. F- uh, on the side of the building, beautiful ceramic tiles, curved building. Beautiful. You walk inside the building, there's, uh, there's beautiful terrazzo floors of different colors. And so I, my guard was kind of down. I'm thinking, oh, beautiful, beautiful. I'd been there many times. But as soon as I walked into that building, I saw the sign-up desk for the chemo infusion. And I looked down the hall and I saw the patients sitting there waiting for their name to be called so they could get one of the chairs for the chemo infusion. And I knew those doors. I knew those doors because I'd all too often had went through those doors and they led into the room and I knew the layout of the room and I remember the chemo chairs and I remember when I went through that six months of chemo, and it just came upon me like a flood. The memory of the six months of chemo that brought me so close to death that I stopped two months short. It was an eight month course, and I said, No, I can't do any more of this. It's going to kill me. So I stopped after six months. But seeing that chemo infusion sign up desk there, it just reminded me of seeing all those patients, I remember those patients coming through those beautiful glass doors, having the ambulance pull up, the stretchers coming out, the patients lying on the the stretchers already close to death, and then going into those infusion doors and the patients receiving the chemo. I remember being in the chemo room and seeing those patients crumpled up like crumpled up pieces of paper in the chairs, their bodies trying to endure the poisonous chemos that were raging through their veins, burning up their veins, destroying the flow of blood as we sadly found out later, in many cases because of the chemo. And it reminded me as I looked at all that of all the side effects that I'm still fighting from the chemo. And all those scenes of death and the dying within the beautiful building, and all the looking around the building, and not like our clinic down in Takati. no scripture plaques on the walls, no Bibles on any of the tables where you're sitting down. It just had all the warmth of beautiful, cold, stainless steel, and a cloud of depression just moved over my head like happens to all of us. And I told my wife, I just felt so low, so down, so sad, so dark, so depressed. It was after 9 p.m. I wanted to call my friend to talk about it. but I thought oh, I might be asleep, so I didn't. And I felt so down, and I, I wanted to resist the cloud of depression, but with the sadness, I couldn't even open my Bible and read it. I couldn't even read my Bible. So what did I do? I decided to sit down and just listen to the words of the beautiful hymns. And as I sat there and listened to the music and listened especially to the words, and I thought about those words as I was listening to them, and those words just healed me. They healed me. They were like a a cleansing flood that just washed over me. Listening to the words of the hymns was like standing under a waterfall of pure water that just washed the sadness away. As I listened, and I thought about those words—great words. Here are some of the words that I was listening to: healing words. Here they are. Every voice and heart is swelling. Worthy is the Lamb slain. When we see Thee as a victim, nailed to the accursed tree for our guilt, He was stricken for our judgment. Born by Thee, Lord, we all with hearts adoring, Thou hast loved us unto blood. Glory, glory everlasting be to Thee, the Lamb of God. There is a fountain open for my cleansing, where sin's atonements by my Lord was made. He was the Lamb that was led to the slaughter, His blood the fountain where my debt was paid. Open for me, open for me. The precious cleansing fountain was open for me. I know a name, a wonderful name. I know a name that can drive away all sorrow. I know a name that is sweeter than them all. I know a name from which comfort I may borrow. When trials come and when tears of anguish fall, I know a name, that wonderful name, that wonderful name, is Jesus. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand, the shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land, a home within the wilderness, a rest upon the way from the burning of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. There's a sweet and blessed story of the Christ who came from glory just to rescue me from sin and misery. He in loving kindness sought me, and from sin and shame he brought me. Hallelujah, Jesus ransom me. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on thy behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written in his hands. Safe in the arms of Jesus, safe on his gentle breast. There by his love o'er-shaded, sweetly my soul shall rest, safe in the arms of Jesus, safe from corroding care, free from the bite of sorrows, free from doubts and fears. He was wounded for our transgressions. He bore our sin in his body on the tree. For our guilt, he gave us peace. From our bondage, he gave release. And with his stripes... And with his stripes our souls are healed. Alas, and did my Savior bleed and my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done he groaned upon the tree? Amazing love, amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, he left. His Father's throne above. So free, so infinite, His grace emptied Himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain, for me who Him to death pursued? No condemnation now I dread, Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. And as I thought on those words and others like it, the cloud lifted. It just lifted. And then my friend called, which is even a further encouragement. That's how God lifts the clouds. That's how he takes depression away, darkness away, sending help, in this case through these hymns and through the phone call of my friend later on that night. Exodus 3 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen, or I have seen, I have seen the depression of my people. And after he sees the depression of his people, he acts to bring them out of the depression by sending Moses. After God sees our depression, he sends relief. So that we can sing with the song it's just like jesus to roll the clouds away it's just like jesus to keep me day by day it's just like jesus all along the way it's just like his great love now verse 7 describes the jewish people with the phrase my people which are in egypt that's how he describes the jewish people to moses he said this is i've seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. egypt does not pose a problem for God to be able to take care of his people. If God's people are in Egypt, then God will take care of his people in Egypt. That phrase describes very well us also as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're his people. Now we're not in Egypt, but we're in the world. But just as Egypt was a hostile country for the Jewish people to be in, the world is a hostile place for us to be in. As a matter of fact, Paul, described the world in 1 Corinthians one twenty one with these words, the world by wisdom knew not God. In other words, the world's wisdom is ignorant of who God is. The world is so blind as to who God is that the best the world can do is to say that, well, there's a lot of religions and all religions are equal and there's no such thing as an absolute truth. There's not one that's right. You can just believe whatever you want because it really doesn't make any difference as to really finding God, because the world doesn't even recognize that there is a God. And that's what it means when it says, the world by wisdom knew not God. All the wisdom of the world came to the conclusion, uh, God, we don't know. It also says in 1 Corinthians 2, 8, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory, it says, was crucified by the princes of this world. So the princes of this world came to the conclusion that they should crucify the Lord of glory. Very good. For believers, the Lord Jesus Christ explains to us our relationship with the world, where he said in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. It didn't say the world doesn't like you. It said the world hateth you. It didn't say the world will tolerate you. It says the world hateth you. And so we're explained here. He's explained to us the world hates us because we're not of the world. Why? Because we don't think like the world thinks. We don't want what the world offers. We don't need what the world offers. We don't value what the world offers. As a matter of fact, we understand that to love the world is a trap That will destroy us so we want nothing to do with this world and just as Israel was in Egypt so we are in the world and just as God was committed to the care of the of the Jewish people for Israel in Egypt God has committed to caring for us in this world it's interesting to see how the Lord prays for us it's a wonderful chapter 17 of John it's a wonderful chapter because it's where the Lord Jesus Christ God the Son is praying to God the Father and it's about us, and so we get to see it, we get to have it. It's very nice. John 17, says this, the Lord is praying to his Father. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I've kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now come I to thee. And these things speak I in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So we see here, He did not pray for us to be taken out of the world, but he prayed that we would be kept from the evil that is in the world. The world is the place. After all, this is the place we live in. We live on planet world, planet Earth. And in this place, God found us in the world. God loved us in the world. God called us in the world. And God strengthens our faith and our trust in him in the world this is exactly what God is going to do for Israel as he put it in Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 when he said when Israel was a child then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt so God calls Israel in Egypt a child and God says that he loved Israel and so why does what does God do when he loves Israel when he's in Egypt he says he calls him God calls Israel out of Egypt And that's how God loves us. He calls us to come out. He calls us to come to himself in salvation. He calls us to come out and be separate, not to be like the world. That's what he said in 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 8, where it says, and God has said, I will dwell. There's that word, well, this is Greek, but it's quoting from the Old Testament. The word is shakan. I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore? Come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord. So now, verse 7, we go on. It says, the Lord says, I've surely seen the depression of my people, which are in Egypt. And then he says that I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. I have heard their cry. I have heard their cry. God told to Moses he heard the cry because that's who God is God is a cry hearing God and when a person really comes to the end of themselves and is desperate and he cries out to God then God promises in uh, Psalm 22 4 24 he said this for he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted neither hath he hid his face from him but when he cried out to him he heard But on the other hand, when a wicked man who has no intention of turning away from his sins and he prays to God because he's in trouble, God says he won't hear him. In Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he heareth the prayer of the righteous. As a matter of fact, when Israel was in a state in their history where they were sacrificing to idols and then came great trouble to them, God was so angry with them that he commanded the prophet Jeremiah to not pray for them and he said that he would not hear them in Jeremiah 11:13 13 through 14, where it says, For according to the number of thy cities were thy gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets in Jerusalem have you set up altars to a shameful thing, even altars to burn incense unto Baal. Therefore, pray not thou for this people, neither lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry unto me for their trouble." God said that when trouble came to these idolaters that they would cry to God, but it would not be the cry and the prayer of repentance. It would be a prayer for relief. and That's similar to when a person comes to the Lord Jesus Christ because he's in trouble and he prays to the Lord Jesus Christ for help, but that person has no desire to want to separate from his sin. That person has no intention of asking God for help to leave his sin. And that's only a prayer for relief from the trouble and not a prayer for, of repentance. And then in verse seven, God shows how intimately he became involved with what his people were feeling. Where it says in verse seven, he says, I heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. It's an amazing thing when God says, I know their sorrows. He didn't say that he knows about their sorrows but he knows their sorrows. We covered this verse earlier, but in Isaiah 63, 9, God has chosen to have it this way where it reads, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. When they were afflicted, he was afflicted. That's why Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he was persecuting the church, the Lord Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He was talking about persecuting him, but he was persecuting the church. It says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted, And the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. So when he said that he knows their sorrows, it means that he felt their sorrows. As a matter of fact, God wants wants to know our sorrows. He wants, this is his choice. He wants to know it. He wants to feel our sorrows. He wants to have firsthand knowledge of our sorrows. Not just a distant report in his hand like, oh, look, I just got a report that my people are sorrowful and sad. No, 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 no. God wants more knowledge of their sorrows than just a sterile report. God wants to experience the sorrows of his people. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ became a man.
0: Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher Tom Cantor here on Friendship with God.